the eight Beatitudes that make up the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Tell us what life is like in the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear kingdom of God, that seems like something way out there, far away, doesn't it? Uh, a good way to think about it, when Jesus says kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, just think about your life under God's rule. Think, if it helps you to think in contrast, think about your life under your rule. And then, on one side, and then contrast that to your life under God's rule. When he's in charge, when he's calling the shots, when you're listening for his voice and responding. The eight Beatitudes, or blessed, describe for us what life will be like for me when I live with Christ reigning in my heart under his rule. The first beatitude, remember, giving to us the first law of life in the kingdom of God is poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who get to a point in their life where they acknowledge that they cannot run their own life. That they've made a mess out of trying to manage their own lives. All of us have been there. You might be there right now at this very moment. It feels terrible, so you might think it's a bad thing, but this is the point at which everything good begins for us. I can't enter the kingdom, says Jesus, until I realize that I don't want to live in my kingdom anymore. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of you and one foot in the kingdom of God. You have to come in empty, naked, destitute. Of course, you are that way, but you have to recognize it. You have to acknowledge it. What was it that the psalm said? I confess. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my own failure to run my life well. Blessed are those people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. Now that's interesting that he doesn't say they get to go into the kingdom. Or they are citizens of the kingdom. He says they are the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? That means that the moment I recognize I don't have anything, and so I make myself eligible to enter the kingdom of God. At that very moment, God makes available to me all that the kingdom of God has. All that belongs to him. Isn't that awesome? That's why it might be helpful to think like Matthew presents it when he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. It's a problem because many of you may think it's way out there. And it's not way out there. It's right here. But it's really helpful because then we remember, when I live in the kingdom of heaven, I get all that heaven affords. When I run my own life and live in my own kingdom, I get all that I can afford. When I live in God's kingdom under the reign of his son, I get all that heaven affords. Are you understanding the benefits there? The first beatitude is about my recognition that I'm totally unable to manage my life and the subsequent decision 
to accept Christ's invitation to reign and rule in my heart as I enjoy life in his kingdom. He's been inviting me all along, but of course I couldn't hear it until I reached that point. Sometimes you call it bottom, call it whatever you want. Desperate, some people call it. Whatever it is, you got to the point where you realized you couldn't do it. Suddenly you noticed all along, someone far greater than you has been offering to do it for you. I quoted last week from C.S. Lewis, remember he said, proud people, that is people who think they can handle life on their own, are always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something above you that's far superior to you in every way. The two go together. I can't enter the kingdom of heaven until I abandon the kingdom of me. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. Here's how he describes in theological terms this process of acknowledging my own failure and therefore making myself at the same moment eligible to receive God's kingdom. We know that our old self that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Me, under my rule, my old self, was crucified. It died, came to an end. It failed, died with him, so that the body that ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And the death he died, he has sinned once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Sin here is just everything you did thought, every action, everything about you under your own rule. Count that dead, says Paul, but alive in his kingdom to God in Christ Jesus. The first law that governs life in the kingdom of God is poverty of spirit. The idea that I have nothing to contribute, I have nothing worth holding on to, I bring nothing now, the second law, or the second beatitude, is about mourning. Now, uh, most of you probably are familiar with these words. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, but you've never probably heard it taught like I'm about to teach you. However, not wanting to be proud about this at all, I'm interpreting the passage in context and what Jesus meant not what we would like to hear. Now, I will say this, the way this is usually interpreted is not wrong. It is right, it's just not what Jesus was saying. There are plenty of other verses that say the same thing. If you're mourning, if you're sad, if you're hurting, if you're grieving, God is going to be there with you and help you. He has promised to do that. He, though everyone else abandoned you, he will not abandon you. That's not what Jesus is saying. That is true, 
It is supported by lots of biblical evidence. It's not what he's saying here. How do I know it's not what he's saying here? I know it because Jesus gave a list. He could have put them in any order he wanted to, right? Jesus was his method. And when Jesus made this list, he could have included any steps he wanted. He could have had 80 Beatitudes. He could have had two if he wanted. He chose eight. He chose to put them in order. Therefore, I think it makes sense that what Jesus is trying to say needs to be understood in the context of all eight Beatitudes, and it needs to be understood in order of the progression of the Beatitudes. Now, does that make sense to you? Okay. So that's all I'm going to say. All right? That mourning is a part of life in the kingdom of God for this reason. The second beatitude reveals the process, mourning, which I must go through when, at last, I make the decision and daily have to deal with the very human tendency to be drawn back to the futility of self-rule. Because last Sunday, I know a lot of you are pure-hearted people, and when you heard a message challenging you to abandon your attempts to run your own life, you knew I was right, you knew the word was right, I was just telling you what the word said, you knew the word was right, and you immediately responded by saying, that's right, why do I keep trying to run my own life? I'm done with that! Right? And it felt great, didn't it? Didn't it? Mm -hmm. And then, Monday morning you woke up, and what did you notice? You had gone, gotten right back on the throne of your life, right? Your first thoughts were, what do I want to do? Well, what about this? Well, how's this going to make me feel? Do I want to see that person? Oh, I don't really want to go there. Okay? Those are, I'm running my own life questions, aren't they? Okay. Now, on Sunday, did you not mean it on Sunday? I think you did mean it. I think that's the natural tendency of the flesh. Okay? It, it knows enough that it can step back when you have one of those moments to say, I'm at the bottom. This is as low as you can go. Okay, I'm ready to enter the kingdom and let Jesus run the show. And rather than fight with you, the flesh just lets you, doesn't it? And then overnight, while you're snoozing, it says, it sneaks back in the throne room and sets back down. It says, excuse me, Jesus, that was great for church, but this is Monday we're facing here, and I'm going to sit on the throne. Right? Is that what happened? Okay. Well, this process of constantly dethroning self, you can't just do it on Sunday. You have to do it on Sunday, and then you're going to have to do it again on Monday morning. You might, in fact, if you're a beginner at this, you might do it on Sunday at church and have to do it again Monday afternoon at Meyer, or Monday afternoon when you're visiting somebody, or Monday afternoon when your car breaks down, or Sunday. Yeah, okay? Because the flesh will immediately jump back on the throne. That's what you're used to. That's what you were born into. Your parents had this same struggle. So you got it naturally, okay? And now you're going to struggle with it. So when we lose something, when we lose control of something, you have 
to mourn for. You have to let it go. You have to learn how to let it go. For instance, when you lose somebody you love in death, you have to let them go, or you can't move on with your life, and you can't let them go where they need to go. Okay? But it's not easy, and it doesn't happen overnight, and it's hard. The process is, day by day, you have to let go. Moment by moment, you have to let go. And, and the biggest letting go is to realize that most of the reasons why you're grieving are utterly and absolutely selfish, right? If, if you have a loved one who's dying of cancer, and they're wasting away, and they're in agonizing pain, and then they die and go to heaven where there is no sickness, no death, right? You ought to be, if you're thinking straight, rejoicing. But you're not, are you? You're, you're going to grieve. In fact, you're going to say things to the pastor like, I know we ought to be happy they're with Jesus. They're in a much better place. Then how come I'm so sad? Well, you're so sad because you don't have them with you anymore. That's selfish, isn't it? It's natural selfish. I've been in the same place. All right? I'm simply saying I have to learn to let go and accept what God has for me to know that having them with me for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years was a gift. I enjoyed it or I didn't enjoy it. If I enjoyed it, good. If I didn't enjoy it, then I didn't trust God to enjoy it enough, but that time is gone. Okay? Now God wants to bless me in another way, in a different dimension. Okay? Uh, God wants to provide for something that's way more eternal, yet in the future. I don't know, but the truth is, I've got to let go. And it's not easy. Well, there's no letting go that's harder than when you first decide to stop trying to run your own life. You're used to it. You like it. You like you on the throne of your life. I like me on the throne of my life. That's why occasionally you get this. You know that Jesus has said some very clear things about be sure to do this and don't do this, etc., and you'll get into a situation, and immediately your flesh says, well, I ought to... Right? None of you ever get there? Okay. And the thing is, that's the point. But right, even as you're saying it, you know Jesus has a different plan. But you're seeing right there, you've got a conflict, don't you? If you're on the throne, they're going to let them have it. If Jesus is on the throne, you might have to just let it go. How do I get from point A to point B? Only grieving. Only mourning. Yeah. If I decide to let it go, because that's what Jesus would want me to do, reigning in my heart, is that going to make me feel good? It is not going to make me feel good. Letting them have it would make me feel better, at least immediately. Because I need to grieve over it. I need to hurt. I need to admit I'm pretty darn selfish. I need to admit I keep wanting to get back on the throne of my own life. I have to admit that I have this tendency to want to run the show. Paul had the same problem. Did you know that? This is from Romans chapter 7. Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, 
but I am unspiritual. Now that's interesting, because if I said to you, of all the people you know in the Bible or out of the Bible, who are the most spiritual people you know, you would say Paul. Right? He says, now, appearances are deceiving. I am very unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. In other words, I ran my own life so long that I easily snap right back to it. You think that's what he's talking about? Listen to this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. It's me running the show that's the problem. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. When I'm on the throne of my life, my kingdom is going to be evil. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. <laughs> Amen indeed. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This is Paul talking. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. In other words, it's the old unredeemed me sitting back on the throne of my life again. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It ends on a positive note, right? right? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He sits on the throne. I'm free from all of that. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. What do we call this process? It is mourning. That's the Bible word for grieving. When I give up control of my life, when I stop finally doing things my way, when I die to self, as Paul puts it, I start into the process of letting go. When you lose someone, something you love, value that is, it hurts. The more you value them, or the more you value that experience, or the more you value that possession, the more it hurts. To recover from the pain, this is the natural process. You begin the natural healing process of grieving, of mourning. I think this is what Jesus was referring to when he said, first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he followed that up with, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first beatitude finds me at the point of confession. 
acknowledgement, admitting my problem. What is Paul, what is Jesus calling poverty of spirit? Regarding my own inability to manage my own life, you might refer to your own life as your kingdom, the kingdom of you, to manage it well. But we have this tendency. The tendency is to try to return to the throne and rule again. That's why if you decide again today, I'm done with running my own life. Tomorrow morning, you'll be right back running your own life again. It doesn't die easily. When it does, when I put it to death, I mourn. Notice how Paul described the essence of his life. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I put my whole trust on Him to rule in my heart. In Him to bring me the things I need to accomplish His design purposes for my life. Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. He mentions that. It's so important that if I'm going to trust somebody else besides me to run my life, what kind of person should I trust? How about somebody who loves you more than you love you? How about somebody who demonstrated his love for you to the point of dying so that you could be at this place to welcome him to reign in your life? <clears throat> when I first became a who was mad, gave me this idea. He said, you do your devotions for me because I was doing them in the morning early. He said, before you start reading, studying, talking, praying, doing whatever you're going to do, always stop, close your eyes, and envision yourself at the foot of the cross. Thus, for the believer, everything begins at the cross. That's where we die to self-rule and embrace Christ's rule. That's where we find new life in Christ. That's why whenever the gospel is presented in Scripture, it's always, he died, and on the third day he rose. Because there would be no point to any of this if there wasn't resurrection to follow. And of course, the resurrection is life now in the kingdom of God. Life as it was meant to be lived. Life as God designed it. The second beatitude actually addresses this stage, mourning, into which I enter. The moment that I identify my own failure and am finally able to let go or grieve over the illusion that I can run my own life. I've envisioned this in a number of, in all of my children's lives and in a lot of my grandchildren's lives starting to get great-grandchildren now, so I'm sure I'll observe the same problem with them. And it's like, man, about three years of age, and, and at some point, they're in some problem situation. They've messed something up that they can't fix or something, and you graciously, because you love them, say, why don't you give that to Grandpa, and I'll help you with that. To which they respond, no, me do it myself! Right? 
you still have that same tendency. That's why when you come to God in desperation, and he starts straightening out a few things in your life, even if you don't wake up the next morning and sit on the throne because you maybe were so far down to the bottom, after a while, a few things start coming together, and now you go like, okay, God, I think I can take it from here. Me do it myself! Always a bad idea. I usually think of reaching. For me, this won't relate to you, but you can relate it to me. I preached my first sermon when I was 17. I'm now 67 and a half, so I've been preaching for 50 plus years. When I preached my first sermon, I was thankful that back in those days they had a big pulpit to hide you. It was underneath the pulpit. This was going on, right? I was terrified. I spent five minutes preparing that sermon and 50 minutes praying about, oh God, don't let me make a fool out of myself. <clears throat> this morning I'll preach twice. Tomorrow I'll preach a couple times. I'm also preaching Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday this week, multiple times on most of the days. Think my knees will be shaking? No. Think I'll be putting 50 to 5 ratio minutes into praying? No. That's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> it's a problem God has to remind me of over and over again. I am no more able to say anything that's meaningful for God today than I was 50 years ago. If he doesn't say it through me, I'm finished and you're leaving empty. To the degree I can recognize that, not easy to recognize, that if I were in charge of my own life preaching, You'd get nothing. I might be able to impress you, but I couldn't share anything with you that could make a difference in your life. That's something that only God can do when I recognize I can do nothing. Now, those of you who've ever been baptized, that's why baptism is a good idea. Because in baptism, some people miss this, baptism isn't about taking a bath in public. It is a, it's not about getting wet, in fact, at all. And it's not about how much water you use or whatever. But the reason why immersion baptism is the best picture, <clears throat> because we are picturing death to self and new life, resurrection life in Christ when you come up out of the water. Every time you see somebody baptized, that's what we're picturing. Now, they may live it or they may not live it. They may live it a little now and more later, or they may live it a lot now and none later, but that's what they're picturing. And so Paul picks up on that idea. He writes again in Romans, these words. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, and when we were, we were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Paul writes 
further in Colossians 3, with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, why did he mention where Christ is seated? Because that's the position of authority. Okay. Is he the authority, final authority in your life? So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you die, you die, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he goes on to list certain things. Third, the process by which I let go of the illusion that I could run my own life. You know, the word for that illusion, by the way, is the word denial. It's when you're sitting there with your top, your shoe tied in 12 knots eight different ways and you're going, me do it myself. That's you with your life, saying like, yeah, I think I can handle this, God. I'll let you know if I need you. The process by which we let go of the illusion is called mourning, and it is both unavoidable and necessary if I'm to live in the kingdom of heaven and enjoy all that it has to offer. I have to learn how to mourn well, how to grieve well over my loss of authority. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 31, Paul says, this is my secret for this. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Isn't that interesting? Because you were thinking, what's wrong with me? That on Sunday, I said I was turning it all over to Christ, and then on Monday, I was back in charge. The same thing's wrong with you that's wrong with Paul. Remember what he talked about in Romans 7? And the same solution for Paul is your solution. I die daily. Now, when you first embrace this idea, chances are, here's the way you'll do it. You'll give your life completely to Christ this day, go to bed, wake up in the morning, you're back in charge, you pay no notice to it. After all, you slept in and you're running late now. And you get to work, and then you find yourself doing all kinds of embarrassing things that you go like, wait a minute, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be doing these things. Then you go, oh, that's right. I got back on the throne. And then you stop, and what do you do? What's Paul do daily? Die. <laughs> you say, okay. Now, Paul says also elsewhere, that he is crucified with Christ. The problem, of course, is 2,000 years later, crucifixion is a lovely piece of jewelry we wear around our necks, or a little lighted figure at the front of the worship center. And yet, in Paul's day, crucifixion was the most evil and awful form of execution the world had ever known. That's what it represented. So, Paul says, I give to my flesh the same treatment that those who arrested Jesus gave to him. 
I deserve to die. I brought nothing but misery and problems into my life. If I'm ever going to become what God wants me to be, I have to die to trying to run my own life. That means that we go to this point not just like I learned to do from somebody who helped me first thing in the morning, but at several critical points in my day, only takes a couple of seconds. Stop, close your eyes, envision yourself at the foot of the cross, and take your instinctive response to the cross. Die to it. Don't say, oh God, help me to try better not to do this. Help me to hold back. Help me. No, there's not going to be enough power to do that. You have to die. At critical points in your day, return to where you started, which is at the cross. Now, like all of the Beatitudes, this Beatitude has a promise that goes with it, which is awesome, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The problem is that the word comfort here, as it's used in the New Testament scriptures, is not at all the typical meaning that we have today, which is, there, there, you poor thing. Okay. Now, I think God sometimes does that, and it's awesome. But, that's not what he's saying here. The word comfort is a made-up compound word in Koine Greek that means literally one who walks alongside of parakletos. It is actually the same title that Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit when he said to his disciples in the upper room, I'm leaving and you're staying, but it's actually to your advantage that I do because if I don't go, then the comforter can't come. In other words, he's going to live in you and produce much more in your life than I could have ever helped you do being here with you now. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, that is, work through the process of letting go of self-rule because they will receive an abundance of God's presence, of God's power, of God's resource, of God's love, of God's grace, of everything you need. In other words, just like poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When God shows up in comfort form, you get everything that's at his disposal. How awesome is that? Reminds me of an Old Testament promise. This is from Deuteronomy 31, 6. It says, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of your opponents, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. However, you can leave him out of the loop. God has no place in the kingdom of you. That's your kingdom. It's a godless kingdom. But if he is sitting on the throne. You're living in his kingdom. Everything belongs to him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. You know this is true because at the lowest, most difficult moments of your life, have you encountered more or less of God? Almost always the response is, God is abundantly available, reveals himself freely, graciously, at my deepest need, at my lowest point. So, I reaffirm the challenge. Get off the throne of your life. You've done a lousy job running your life. Let him run it. But, I add today, don't be surprised when tomorrow you're right back in the same place. So what's my suggestion then? Don't wait till next Sunday. And don't try to just push you off the throne, take you out, and crucify you. Don't need two kings. Let Jesus reign in your heart, in your life. Father, this is the life we long for. Thanks for showing us the way. We confess to you our guilt over making a promise last week and then quickly abandoning it because it's so difficult. But right now, as we end the service today, as we come to the conclusion of this second beatitude, we hear you inviting us. You weren't surprised. <laughs> and we relinquish authority over our lives once again to you. We invite you once again to sit on the throne of our lives. We hear you inviting us to come just as we are. In Jesus' name, amen.